you very much, Jean, for being on the, such a dynamic member of the board and uh, so warm and embracing of this International Institute of Art History that we have at the University of Melbourne, which is now in its fifth year. We had Gerard Vaughan as a fellow in between being director of the National Gallery of Victoria and the National Gallery of Australia, and he was with us for two and a half years. He did an extraordinary amount of teaching in our museology and curatorship courses, but he also uh, was engaged in research about collecting in contemporary Australia, which will result in a book, and we hope to have a whole series of conversations between uh, the foremost contemporary collectors in Australia and art historians and commentators uh, in the second semester. And he will produce this, this great book. He was a graduate of the University of Melbourne and he's always been uh, very deeply involved in the history of collecting from colonial periods until present day Australia. At the National Gallery of Australia, he has many new ideas for his policies there. I know a tiny bit about them, but not uh, very much. He was a very wonderful colleague in Melbourne, and we hope that he will come back to us should he uh, not stay in Canberra forever. Um, and I should perhaps mention that he convened a conference on heritage, international heritage, and it, was, it really made you rethink the fabric of Australian architecture and the city that you lived in. And Andrew Andersons was one of our keynote speakers. He's here tonight. And he daringly proposed this idea that in Sydney, uh, building controls in the CBD of large buildings is much more efficiently managed than in Melbourne. And he did it so well that we all believed him. Which was <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Gerard was, was, this was a wonderful conference that went on for a long, a long time. And at the beginning I thought, oh, it's going to be too long, but it somehow that had you on your seat and um, mesmerized by the whole thing. So I won't um, go on talking more about Gerard's virtues, which will be well known to many of you. And we'll ask you to welcome Gerard Vaughan to talk about his new plans for the NGA in Canberra. Thank you. <coughs> Well, Janie, um, thank, thank you very much for those um, generous introductory remarks, and thank you, Jean, too, for, for yours and for your hospitality tonight. I'm really pleased um, to be here. I know it's common to sort of say, well, pe people, people are asked when they come into some new role, whatever it might be, often a political role, um, you know, give a kind of report on 100 days. So that's what, um, in fact, I've been at the NGA now for 142 days or something like that. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's close enough. But look, it's obvious that um, I've been getting to know the institution, getting to know the team, um, the cast of players, um, and thinking very much about um, my initial ideas before I arrived there as to what how new directions in which the NGA might go, because naturally, um, any job interview that anyone goes for, you know, the first question, once you get over the sort of the formalities and whatever, is, well, how would you change things? What new directions would you take the organisation in? And um, under Ron Radford, who's a great friend of mine, um, he, he's been a very uh, careful steward um, of the NGA. All sorts of new things have happened, all sorts of new developments. Um, and, you know, including, of course, stage one the, the, of, of the new wing, um, designed again by Andrew Andersons uh, for the Indigenous collection, so many innovations. Um, but it's now my turn to sort of, you know, step up and to think um, about what I would like to do. And obviously, for me, it's very much a collaborative process, um, long meetings with the senior executive team, 
with the senior curators um, and then with all the managers at the different levels down debating all of these issues and trying to get sort of the views of everybody in the organization as to um, new ways we might go about um, the business um, of, the, of the National Gallery of Australia. And obviously right up front, um, the first thing that any director has to do coming in is take a look at the exhibitions program um, and decide whether or not it's one you're going to sort of back and buy into. Ron was very smart. Um, he decided he didn't want to burden his successor with um, you know, a, a very detailed exhibitions program going on over several years, which is fair enough. I, I, I'm very pleased about that. Um, it just means there's a lot of work to do very quickly. Um, that's okay. We, we're, we're getting on with it. Um, in terms of the summer show, some very interesting discussions going on. Um, watch this space. Um, but once we get a few years out, um, it's, it's, it's a bit clearer, and um, we're going to be there's some, going to be some terrific things um, coming in. And of course, things like acquisitions policy. Um, and again, I think um, from my perspective, we need to have some new thinking about acquisitions at the N, at the NGA. Um, and when I was director of the National Gallery of Victoria, um, we often had debates with the curators about, well, should we buy this or that? Um, how broadly should you go? How many layers down? Should you have every artist who is working professionally and who has an exhibitions history or not? And quite often, I used to find myself saying to the curators, I don't think this one's for us. It's more an NGA kind of thing. Um, and in, in, implicit in that statement, of course, was uh, the view that perhaps the national collection in Canberra should be more encyclopedic, a, a, you know, an equivalent perhaps of the National Library, which acquires one copy of every book um, published in Australia. Now, we can't have um, one work by every artist um, who exhibits professionally. Um, and that, for me, is a big issue. Um, I believe, and I don't mind saying this, looking back, of the statistics over recent years, I have to say, I think that the NGA is buying too much. I think we have to slow the rate of acquisition. But what I've said to the curators is this. Um, we, we will now really only seek great masterpieces, things that will be quite transforming, that, you know, um, prima facie, we'd want them to be on view, um, you know, right from day one. Uh, but I guarantee you this, if we slow down the rate of purchase, I will work with you to spend far, far more money than we've ever spent. So that's not a bad deal. Um, so we'll see where it takes us. Um, but I think, you know, I, I do think that, you know, we, we've, we are building now, extending the uh, storage facility out at Hume, and we can't go on extending indefinitely. Um, I think there are going to have to be some changes. And I, I'm often asked this by journalists, I actually believe in deaccessioning. I, I think that large collections should deaccession, um, and they should have the right um, to make decisions about things that are perhaps no longer relevant, um, or the opportunity to buy a better examples of an artist's work and to let certain things go. It's a tough one, and it can't just be about personal taste. It's got to be, there have got to be a set of principles that guide it, because you cannot get it wrong. Um, and that the worst thing that could ever happen is for, uh, in a moment of enthusiasm um, or lack of enthusiasm, uh, as taste changes to let things go that at the next generation or generations later will greatly admire. And that happened at the NGV, of course, when in the 1940s, Darrell Lindsay was implacably, who's a great director, by the way, except on this issue, he was implacably opposed to everything Victorian and said that anything Victorian was, um, showed no taste, there was no interest in it. The market, of course, was rock bottom. You could buy anything you wanted. You know, you could buy a major Frederick Layton for 100 pounds in the 19, sort of 40s and 50s. Um, and and many things that went then, we would dearly love to have back. And occasionally, when I was at the NGV, the opportunity um, presented itself. So my, um, but I have come in, um, so far as the council of the NGA is concerned, 
as every new director must, with an agenda for change. And of course, one of the first things I looked at was the, the, the planning process, um, because I've mentioned phase one, this wonderful new building by Andrew Anderson's um, for the indigenous collections. And of course, the, I, I inherited from Ron um, some very good plans for the next phase of that, stage two, which will be an extremely large space for the non-indigenous Australian collections. And we're, we're essentially keeping that plan and that layout, although we're not, we'll make it very flexible so that we, the walls can come and go, they can be, we can expand spaces, contract them, um, because there are different ways, I think, in which we can, in fact, present um, the Australian um, collection. So that's certainly, and I'll come back to this, but certainly one of the very early things I wanted to take a look at. And maybe one of the, one of the reasons for it is the space is getting a little bit competitive. Um, Sydney Modern, um, you know, Sydney, I've just been talking to Michael Brown this afternoon, a project for re requiring 450 million. I'm told that the NGV, um, the, the, certainly I was asked by my council um, or board um, in, in Melbourne when I was still at the NGV, to draw up a plan, that plan's got bigger and more ambitious, which is a good thing, but I think it's going to be even more um, than the um, sum total um, for the cost of Sydney Modern. Um, it means that our thinking, it, it means that our thinking about um, the Canberra project, which will actually double the size of the existing buildings, um, looks rather modest, so it's going to be a no-brainer. I mean, it's very easy to find funding for. Not all that modest, by the way, but some... <laughs> more modest than, than Sydney and, and Melbourne. Um, so as I said, it's been very much for me a matter of sizing everything up and looking at the big issues. And I suppose the elephant in the room is one I better confront right up front, um, and that is the Asian provenance um, problem, uh, which has been a big community um, concern. There's been a lot of press about it. <clears throat> and I think you know, or many of you who have been reading The Australian in particular, uh, which has you know, taken a particular interest in these subjects, um, we're doing a number of things. We have created a provenance research project. Every one of the 5,000 works in the Asian collection is being reviewed, um, the provenance trail. Um, but we've started with the 54 recently, fairly recently acquired Indian antiquities and those that have cost the most money because that is where the greatest problems will lie. Um, you, you, you know the story of the dancing Shiva, which has gone back. We've now, and we published this recently, we have a new deal with the dealer in New York who supplied the, the large, the huge seated Buddha and we, uh, the purchase price has been refunded to us. Title has reverted to the dealer, on con but on condition the dealer has um, made a firm commitment that she will donate that work to India. So I think that's a bit of a win-win situation. And the other thing is that as we go through this process, and there will be at the end of it enormous numbers of what we call in the business orphan objects, we'll never know where they came from, when they left the country of origin, we'll simply never know. And that's where... Michael Brand has been very helpful because he had to deal with those issues at the Getty, dealing, negotiating with the governments of Turkey, Greece, Italy, and I think that Michael led the world, really, when he was at the Getty, in new, fresh, and, and very positive ways in which these issues can be confronted um, and dealt with. So I'm hoping that we can take some of that learning um, to our discussions in due course with the government of India and, 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 and others. So... Um, what I suppose my first sort of thinking was, well, what really is the idea and the purpose of a national gallery of art? That is in Canberra. I suppose um, before that we should ask the question, what's the point of a, of a capital called Canberra? Um, where it is, but I won't go into that. Um, but it does, you know, the, the idea for Canberra, like Washington DC, Ottawa, um, Brasilia, these the sort of invented um, capitals, um, 
was that they should also have great national institutions. And, and the, 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 the gallery was um, a while in coming. The library, obviously, was crucially important, national archives, all those things you would expect. And of course, later, after the gallery, the new National Museum um, of Australia. So what is it for? Well, um, thinking about that, I suppose um, any director of any museum of art or any museum thinks about money a great deal of the time because there's never enough of it. But you can say, well, look, here, here, the, 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 the annual grant from the federal government to the NGA is almost the equivalent um, of the annual grant from the state of Governor Victoria to the NGV, which has two buildings. Um, and of course, servicing a city of about 4.25 million and more around, um, and the NGV, the visitors have been creeping up. I think it was between 1.6 and 1.7 million a year when I left two and a half, three years ago. It's now getting very close to 2 million. And, and, it, and it always depends upon the big exhibitions and how well they do and how many people come to them. Um, Look at Canberra, 350,000, although you've got the region, of course, um, around Canberra, which has a lot of people. And you just have to do a very crude, primitive mathematical division, um, the number of visitors into the government grant. And you'll have to accept, inevitably, um, the cost per visitor to someone who comes to the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra is higher. And it's going to cost them a lot more in any case, because, I mean, many people just have the NGA on their tour. A family coming to the national capital will go to the War Memorial, they'll go to Parliament House, they'll drop into the gallery, they might have an hour for the gallery. What do they want to see? Well, we do know a bit about this. Um, they want to see Blue Poles, they want to see um, Sidney Nolan's Ned Kelly series and various other things. Um, so there are the, 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 the quick visitors looking for the, for the national icons, if I can call it that. Um, so there are, there are a whole lot of different motivations. But if somebody comes from Melbourne especially to see a big exhibition, very often it's not just you know, the $25 to buy your ticket to get into the exhibition. You've got to buy your air ticket to get to Canberra, get back. You might decide to stay overnight. You pay for a hotel room. You go out to dinner. You pay for breakfast. In other words, the cost of coming to an event, an exhibition at the NGA in Canberra um, can be very high. Um, and the NGA's annual numbers are really very good when you think about those inhibitions and those issues. Um, average about 800,000. Some years it goes down a bit. And the last year it's actually gone up. It's pushed closer to a million because of that um, coincidence of two very significant exhibitions, the Turner exhibition from the Tate and, of course, the, the Incas um, exhibition. Um, and there's really no point in the NGA trying to behave like a state gallery. Um, it, there's just no point. The, the, the issues are different. And I have to say this, um, and I'm very pleased about it, the, um, the pressure from government and from bureaucrats in Canberra is a different kind of pressure. There is not that obsession with numbers, 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 your KPIs. If you had so many last year, you must increase it by between 5 and 10%. And that goes on and on and on. Um, the, it's, a, it's a more sophisticated discussion, perhaps, with your bureaucracy um, in Canberra. And I like that. It's just a little bit more relaxed for, for, for all those practical reasons that I've suggested. So what are our assets? Well, of course, first and foremost, it's the collection. It's a superb collection. Um, you know, both the Australian um, Indigenous collection and the non-Indigenous collection, they're quite remarkable and very, very deep. I think um, Ron Radford used to often say, and I, I used to wonder when I heard him say it, is this really true um, in terms of the NGV? But I, I, I now, having seen the statistics, um, that the NGA does have the largest indigenous collection of any institution in the world, um, and the quality of it is quite exceptional. But that applies to the non-indigenous collection as well. If you go into the international sphere, you don't need me to tell you about the quality of the 20th century American collection. Some say it's um, one of the very finest in the world outside the US itself. Um, and what I'm thinking of doing, in fact, one of the things I'd like to do sooner rather than later um, is have a, a really significant internal blockbuster 
um, of the 20th century American collections. Because what we see when we go into those galleries is the tip of the iceberg. Layer and layer and layer of utterly extraordinary things. Works on paper, prints, photography. The American photography collection is amazing. I had no idea how deep and how rich it was. And I think that we could create a substantial and significant exhibition just from the permanent holdings, because most of it will not have been seen by anybody. Um, you know, certainly not since perhaps the 1980s when the um, when the NGA first opened. And even for me, as the incoming director, going to the pop art show at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, there were nearly 50 items in that show from the NGA, and half of them at least, I had no idea the NGA owned them. So it was a real eye-opener for me. And um, every day as I dig into the files and I talk to the curators and learn more, um, I'm amazed by all of that. If you go back to the 1960s, to the founding principles of the NGA, um, there was a very, some very visionary statements, in fact, drove the sort of policy for collection development from those people that we tend to think of as rather conservative, in fact, um, Daryl Lindsay and um, William Dargie. Uh, but they were the, the leading lights on that first committee in the 1960s. Um, and, we, you know, as I said, we, 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 they, Darrell Lindsay certainly came out as a kind of enemy of the modernism that Eric Westbrook, his successor at the NGV, um, really promoted, and, and looking to New York and um, looking to global contemporaneity. Um, but they said, as, as well as, you know, collecting Australian art across the board, we've got to look at the art of our region. And they particularly emphasised South and Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And I think that those elements of the NGA collection are remarkable. And we, there, may, there, there have been a few problems with some of the Indian sculptures recently, but putting those trials and tribulations to one side. And at the end of the day, we were victims of fraud. I mean, the, 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 the dancing Shiva and almost certainly the seated Buddha, um, the, 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 the um, provenance documentation uh, was fraudulent. Uh, it's just a fact of life, and ov obviously the um, due diligence processes now are very, very strict, but they, it's a global thing. I talked about this with Neil McGregor at the British Museum when I was in London a few weeks ago, and he absolutely agreed with me because he's been following what's happening at the NGA very, very closely, and he said, look, you know, I, I'm with you, Jaron, on this. We were, um, that 10, 15, 20 years ago, nobody cared. It's not unlike Nazi spoliation. 20 years ago, Directors of major museums around the world were perfectly aware that they had hanging on their walls, absorbed into their permanent collections, works stolen by the Nazis from Jewish families and Jewish collectors, and nobody cared. And now we do, and it's just a kind of natural process, and a very good and correct one, of course. So. Um, what we want to do, first of all, is to refresh the installations. Um, also, the infrastructure is aging. Um, it was, you know, state-of-the-art when it opened in 1982. We all poured in and were amazed by it, and there was this amazing sense of energy and activity that the NGA had. But it's all sort of quietened down a bit. Um, and, you know, the, the original building... Um, certainly needs a lot of infrastructure replacement, even lighting systems, for example. They're very out of date. We've got to spend a lot of money, and I'd rather do it quickly now um, than, than wait and do it, do it gradually. So there's a lot, of, a lot of discussions about money, whether or not we can get extraordinary grants out of government for this kind of thing, whether they'd lend us some money from future grants for infrastructure replacement. There's, there's a lot to be discussed, obviously, within the bureaucracy in Canberra. Um, but look, what we're going to do, um, we, we, we want this idea of refreshment, of sort of emerging with a kind of new NGA, and one of the things we're going to do in tandem with, with the collections themselves is to think about brands. We want to completely reposition the NGA from a brand um, perspective, and that, that'll be a very intense activity um, 
in the coming months. Now, I'll come back in a moment to on-site visits and the quality of those visits, but look, um, and this is particularly because Canberra is where it is. It has this relatively small population. We have tourists who come in, but obviously the off-site presence of the NGA is crucially important, and it does well. I mean, the website's a good one, but it can be better. Um, our whole online presence, I think, can be rethought um, and strengthened in all sorts of ways. Um, we, much, we, we want to make it all more interactive. Um, I think that we would like to we've already got great resources, just get more and more content um, on, onto the website so that you know, the, the website of the NGA can become known in this country and overseas. If you want to know about Australian visual culture, a really good place to start, in fact, um, is, is the NGA. Um, and I think you know, there's a lot we can do. The, the other, of course, the other um, off-site um, area in which we make a huge contribution to the nation, and I was very aware of it when I started at the NGV in 1999, and tried to imitate a little bit at the NGV uh, what the NGA had done for a very long time. And that is sending out these touring exhibitions around the country. I'm going to Darwin in two days to open the uh, an exhibition of uh, French Impressionist and Post-Impressionist works on paper and prints. Um, and these exhibitions are constantly touring around the country, going into regional centres as well as sometimes state galleries. Um, and that's really very important. The other thing I'm also very committed to, and I've discussed this at some length with the Council, um, again, to make the collections of the NGA relevant to the whole country, I think we should be pursuing a program of the devolution of the national collection. Um, now, there's a pilot project. Ron Radford, as you know, took all the pre-1800 European masters, not all that many of them, actually, because he didn't feel there was a, a broad context for them. They were just stuck on their own with nothing around them. And we've seen how well that's worked. And many of the best are in Melbourne, for example, the Tiepolo, um, a whole heap of other works. And that's in Melbourne. They do find a context, and it's a very good and sensible way to use the national collection. Um, and I would want to say to state and regional galleries around the country, when we're ready to go, there's a big project here, come and talk to us about long-term loans for five years, for ten years, um, and let's try and get things out around the country. And the, there, there will be perhaps um, a, a side effect of that which could be a very positive one, and that is that many regional galleries will fail the test. We have, we have to be very strict about um, security, about air quality, a whole range of things, and many of them will fail. But that's a terrific thing, because then they can go to their funding bodies and we can go with them and say, if you invested this much money in your local museum, you could borrow the following things from the National Collection. So, and I've seen that happen in Victoria a little bit, and um, it works. Well now, on site, there, a lot of effort's going to be given to what we might call visitor engagement. Um, certainly, we want to um, have a much greater digital presence when you walk into the building, in fact when you're outside the building as well, so that you can get quick information about what to do, what's on, what the big things of the moment are. And right now we're planning the, to, to, a, a fundamental change of what I might call the, the arrival process for the visitor experience. In other words, just giving people more and better information. I don't know how recently any of you might have had lunch in the cafe of the NGA. It's okay, but we think it can be a lot better. And um, we're talking to our caterers, we're going to refurbish it, spend, there's a budget to spend some money um, in the original Colin Madigan uh, building um, and to make that a much more interesting and, and, and enjoyable sort of visitor experience. We're doing the same with the members' space. But most of all, we're going to, we, we've, we've decided to do something quite radical um, and talking to those who have been there for a long time, um, there have been ideas in the past about doing what we're, we're, I'm going to tell you about now, but um, no one's ever got around to it. Um, we're actually going to swap the collections. So when you walk in and you come up the escalator, 
You turn right and you go into stage one, into the Indigenous collections. If you go straight ahead, you'll enter the Australian collections. And we're going to bring the Australian collections from upstairs on level two down to level one, onto the main level. Um, we're going to reorganise it and add spaces um, to, to that so that we can have a much greater and stronger and deeper representation of the Australian collections. And I think that's very important. And then the international collections go upstairs. And some people have said to me, but what about Blue Poles? It's huge. It needs a massive amount of space. Um, I don't think that's the case. We borrowed Blue Poles um, when I was in Melbourne, when we reopened the building at the end of 2003. We put it into a gallery not much bigger than this room here. Um, or twice the size, but not, not huge, and not with a very, not a particularly high ceiling. And blue poles looked absolutely sensational, um, and crowds went into that space, and um, it was an amazing moment, I have to say, um, for the NGV to have the privilege of having uh, blue poles there for a couple of months. So we're going to also say to the curators, look, we ran out of space years and years and years ago. It's a hopeless situation. And we're, we're going to move away from the hanging policy, which is not too different to just a small regional gallery. You run a chronological line. You know, you start with colonial. You work all the way through all the different <coughs> movements. Whoops. Um, and then you end up with, with contemporary. And you have one or two artists. If someone's really important, you know, you might get three Fred Williamses and, and, and two John Bracks or whatever it might be. Um, but we, we simply have examples. And in, in a funny way, the NGA isn't saying much more, or you're not getting much more information um, about the narrative of Australian art than going to a, a good quality regional gallery. So we're, we're stopping that. Uh, we're still on a chronological line, but um, the, all the curators have been asked to think very hard about themes, about narratives, stories that we can tell, because we are, after all, the National Gallery of Australia, and we have these rich collections, thousands and thousands of pictures that never see the light of day, and we're encouraging curators in different areas, photography, works on paper, painting, sculpture, to get together and to effectively create for us and for our public mini-exhibitions um, from the permanent collections of the NGA. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting, and there's a big summit with all the curators next week where they're going to put on the table all their ideas. We can't do all of them, but we'll do them in the second year or the third year. So that's, I think, very important. So we want the collections in the way we arrange them to tell a national story that's appropriate for the National Gallery. Um, now, the, in, within the spaces in the permanent collection, um, we'll be having areas that can be bigger or smaller, we'll be very flexible in the way we design and organise them, for small imported shows that we will not charge for. Um, we're going to bring in the work of Australian artists or groups of artists and international in a whole range of areas where there is no way we could ever do a blockbuster or a major retrospective. It's impossible. But if we can't do that, let's bring in a dozen works by individual artists of great international importance so that we can show our visitors and show the Australian public, give them a glimpse of it at least, um, as to what the big issues are in terms of the practice of those artists. And I think that really um, is very important. Those works will have to be borrowed from collectors and institutions around the world, and we've already started discussions about that, and there are some quite interesting... Um, what, what's really pleased me is that I'm getting good reactions from people. That sounds like a good idea for Australia. You know, you, yes, you can't do the definitive Richter exhibition, but why don't you borrow a dozen from different places and at least give a synopsis um, of the trajectory of Richter's um, career? The, the rhythm of exhibitions is important. We'll, we'll continue to have a big summer blockbuster, but I think that, and I'm on record as saying this quite often when I'm asked by journalists, blockbusters will get smaller by definition. Um, it's changed um, around the world, and I think it's a very good thing. They'll become much more focused. There is a sense of institutional exhaustion with all these 
works of art. It was a phenomenon of the 1970s and 80s and 90s, really, and it has tailed off. And I'm always, you know, I, I think of the, the Velasquez exhibition at the London National Gallery. Um, there are only 40 paintings in that exhibition, um, and yet it turned into the most visited exhibition in the entire history of the, of the London National Gallery. So as long as it's well curated, well thought through, there's a theme, a thesis, um, I think we can do it. In the winter, in the middle of the year, we're going to have um, a major Australian or relevant international um, exhibition, which may or may not be a pay exhibition. We had the Arthur Boyd show last year um, coming up in July. June, July, we're going to have the Seapig River exhibition. This is going to be sensational. You mustn't miss it. Things are coming from around the world, from Papua New Guinea, as well as our own collections. Um, and I think it will really blow you away. It's going to be, um, I can't wait um, for that show to open. And then next year in 2016, in that slot, of course, we're going to have Anna Gray's great magnum opus, the Tom Roberts retrospective. And that really will be a major Australian retrospective. And there'll be other smaller shows sort of interspersed um, all over the place. So what we're hoping that will come from this is a sense of energy and change um, and you know encouraging our, our audiences people who visit to see it all with fresh eyes in other words I, I've overheard it myself since I've been at the NGA and I used to hear it at the NGV people come in for a temporary exhibition and you hear them having a chat what are we going to do now when they come out of the exhibition oh no we don't need to see the permanent collection we've already seen that um, and it never seems to change I mean we want the permanent hang um, to change all the time there'll be a new focus on contemporary art um, and, and the, 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 we're creating a new department of contemporary art. It's, it's rather extraordinary that the NGA does not have one. In other words, we have seven departments, and the remit of, that depa of each of those seven departments is to collect from wherever it begins, if it's the history of photography, you know, back in the 1840s, right up to the present. That's fine, uh, but we now need a new focus on global contemporaneity, and we're going to get it. So in a couple of weeks, we'll be advertising um, for a new senior curator of... Um, of, of, of global visual practice. Um, it'll be Australian and the rest of the world, and we'll see where, see where that takes us. The other post we'll be advertising, in fact, this weekend, I think, coming up, we are recreating a post of deputy director. It's going to be a little bit different to most institutions that have a deputy director. It's either um, someone who looks after the curatorial side or someone who does finance and general admin. This is much more just dividing the director in two so that we can move quickly. There's a lot we're going to have to get through and a lot we're going to have to do. Um, so it'll be a kind of the alter ego um, of the director um, with special special, obviously there will be direct reports as well, and, and they may well include you know, finance and whatever, but just so that we can really keep the directorate moving quickly in a very, very focused way. Um, the, the NGA contemporary space, of course, down by Lake Burley Griffin, um, that's a very small space. It, 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 is, it, it is a temporary contemporary space. Um, it's just got a little snapshot at the moment of, of some of the recent acquisitions of Australian contemporary art, which is good, of course, but once we once we get our new senior curator of contemporary art in place, the, the brief is going to be, that's fine, you know, once a year for a month or two you can do that, a snapshot of recent acquisitions, but we want you to fill this space with a, with a, with, with, with a changing um, exhibitions um, of, of young artists in particular um, who will do installations, groups of artists, um, performance, whatever it is, but we want it to be very sort of edgy um, and hopefully to sort of get a whole new audience in Canberra because there are a lot of students in Canberra and at the moment I don't think that the NGA is quite giving I mean, do you know about, I mean, well, we keep hearing about hipster culture. I don't, I'm not sure about hipster culture. I mean, um, <laughs> it's, but it, it's a big, it, it's a, the word that's out there, apparently. Um, but, but, uh, but I think that we can sort of make, if we get it right, we can make the NGA a place where young people will want to come. 
um, from Canberra and the surrounding uh, region. We've got to start collecting contemporary Asian art, much more than we have. We've got some good things, and I know that Gene and Brian, for example, have gifted um, some wonderful things, and they'll be coming out again. Um, yeah, no, they'll be coming out again. And the reason for that is that there's essentially nowhere at the NGA now, if you walk around the building, there's essentially no... Asian art, contemporary art on view. One or two things here and there in a rather isolated way. We are going to dedicate one of the largest spaces in the entire art museum to contemporary Asian. Um, so that, that we're really sort of excited about that. That's going to be fantastic. Also contemporary American. Um, you know, I've talked about the quality and depth and richness of the American collections, but that all stopped around 1990 for reasons I think you'll understand. Um, and there are gaps to fill. We're going to start to collect contemporary American visual art again um, fairly extensively. I think it makes absolute sense given um, you know, what the, the legacy of, of James Mollison, for example. And we're really reviving and revving up the American friends of the, the NGA. That, that's going to be fantastic as well. So there's, there's a lot to do. Um, just to wrap up, um, in terms of stage two, the, we, we've changed the, um, the, the inherited plan um, from Ron Radford, and he's worked on this with Andrew, of course. Um, we're making it a little bit larger. Uh, I mentioned that before. Most of the space will be for the Australian collections, but on the, we're going to add another floor above uh, with more than 2,000 square metres for global contemporary art. So the new curators and the new department will actually have some serious space um, in which to um, display the collections. And we're also sort of rethinking the building. And rather than saying, well, we're going to think about this as a suite of rooms that you approach internally, and you only think about it as an internal space, we want the building to be a significant building. Um, and we've had long talks with, that, with Andrew, and he's produced, who is our consultant architect, and he's produced just some indicative plans as to what it might be in the future. And one of the things we sort of have been talking about is the idea of, we don't want a blank wall facing the NGA Garden and Lake Burley Griffin and Mount Ainsley beyond. It's a sensational view. We're going to open it up and have it as an active facade, rather Italianate in spirit, not necessarily in you know, architectural style and, and, and design with terraces, lodges. We're going to try and bring the garden up the facade. There'll be, you know, sort of vines and whatever. It suits the weather. Um, and we want to have there um, spaces that will actually help us to earn income because government grants are static at best. In fact, they're going backwards. Um, we know that at the moment um, that between 35 and 40 percent of the gross revenues any year um, of the NGA are not the government grant. I mean, they are earned incomes from entrepreneurial activities, from running the shops, from hiring out the Gandal Hall, whatever it might be, um, from running the cafe and whatever. And we're going to have really fabulous um, facilities there. So it's a place for people to come in Canberra. If the Prime Minister has a big sort of you know, political conference and has 800 visitors from around the world, they can have their cocktail party and dinner um, there. So we, we've got to think of ways in which we can make this... Um, um, a building, a kind of, as well as a fabulous art museum with wonderful spaces, um, an aspect of it, a part of it that will actually earn income for us. And, and my last comment is very much about um, Ron Radford's idea of when the new building comes and this great new space for the Australian collections, thinking of it or creating a sense of um, a centre for the study of Australian art. And that's something that I embrace. I want the NGA to perhaps um, adopt the persona of, of, of a research institute, because we already are. We've got these great experts. We publish books. We do conferences all the time. We've got one coming up next week in collaboration with the Australian Institute of Art History on Hugh Ramsey. And this is exactly what we should be doing. Um, and we've actually designed a whole conference area for that. And when we're not using it, it can be, again, made available to anyone who wants to rent it um, with, with, with diamonds 
dining facilities and a, you know, a cafe nearby and whatever um, so that we can earn some income from it. So th th that's the future. That's sort of where we're going. Um, everything depends upon money, doesn't it? Um, and as I said, the space for huge new museum developments is a rather crowded one at present, but um, our plan is a good one. Um, I think it's suitable for the NGA. It fits with the persona of the NGA, um, and we'll just quietly pursue it. I'm not prepared to suggest when it might come on stream. I mean, even if it were funded tomorrow, it would probably take five years um, to, to, you know, for, for, from that moment um, to opening the doors. So any time between five and ten years from now, perhaps. I hope it's... So do you, Andrew. It's, it's, I hope it's sooner rather than later. And we as an institution are very committed um, to ignoring what the bureaucrats sort of necessarily say, that, that this is not a good moment to be going to the federal government for any big new project, but we just want to be ready, just in case at some point there's a reason um, for a new project in Canberra, um, a new national project, um, we'll have something that we can sort of show and say, well, this really is an important project for the nation and it's one that we can get, we can get moving on. But these, these are tough times when it comes to um, finance. But as I said, increasingly, we're going to be relying on our own money, the money we earn, um, and that's a very important part. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I found it a very exciting talk, and I love the idea of the internal blockbuster and also these smaller exhibitions. My question is uh, about acquisition policy. You talked about buying masterpieces, and you also made reference to Daryl Lindsay's original plan for the gallery from the 50s, which was to, it sound, this will sound banal now, but it was to make sense of where Australia was in the world and to have great Asian collections and indigenous collections. Will, uh, and then Ron, when he took over as director, wanted to reintroduce that. And um, I mean, I just wondered what your attitude is to, to that traditional policy oh. within the NGA. No, it's one that I embrace. I, I mean, I've suggested some new changes. We perhaps need to do more for contemporary Asian. We need to revive mm. the collecting of, of, of contemporary American. But Ron delivered two amazing things, didn't he? He delivered the indigenous wing, uh, which is fantastic. It is the place in the country now to go to see um, the, the modern indigenous movement and some earlier material as well. Um, so that's a great triumph um, for Ron. And he gave, uh, and just putting our one or two provenance problems to one side, he put enormous energy and many, many financial resources into transforming the South and Southeast Asian collections um, of the NGA. And one thing that he did, uh, which I really appreciate, um, and I think it's, it's a, a signal for the future, um, we borrowed, when I say we, Ron, um, negotiated a loan from the National Museum in Phnom Penh in Cambodia of a group of really important uh, Khmer sculptures. And that is exactly the way we should be going. And we should be you know, talking to countries around the world um, about exchanges and about borrowing things in a very legal way that's very open and transparent so that none of these problems associated with the art, mark, uh, the art market and the vagaries of the art market um, you know, need, need be there sort of hanging over us. To be frank, I've pretty much said to everybody for the moment, for the time being, and perhaps forever, um, you know, we're not collecting antiquities anymore and Asian antiquities, we've stopped. 
Now, there might be the occasional piece that has a perfect, impeccable provenance that is, is consistent with all of the protocols, the, the, the international protocols, the, the UNESCO protocols, and the Australian government's own pretty tough protocols, and they are tough. We have some of the toughest in the world, but I'm pleased we've got them, because now there can be no doubt. I mean, it's a very good document, in fact. Um, but I think that may be the way forward um, for us in a whole range of areas. So um, it, it's really just you know, evolving where we are and still looking around. So Ron said, well, the two things I want to confront are you know, a, a wonderful space for the indigenous collections to improve the Asian collections and the spaces. And now we're going to move into these other areas as well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Michael Young. Um, a couple of questions, uh, Gerard, if I may. Yeah. You, you mentioned improving or getting getting more digital experience available for visitors when yes. they arrive. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you will be embracing something like uh, David Walsh's O device? I'm not sure about that. Um, it's, 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 it's very, it, it is very expensive. The principle is a good one. Um, but I think we'll be going, you know, we, we've got a head of digital um, um, and we're putting a lot more resources into that. It may be that people in due course will, will just be able to use their own phones and their own devices as they, as they move around um, the institution. To begin with, we're simply going to have a lot more screen-based information, giving people as they arrive, as they walk in, what to do, what the events of the day are. Uh, we'll be using digital screens through the building, um, introducing parts of the collection, for example, but we're not abandoning what I would call the traditional didactic panel either. Um, so you will walk into a, into a room and there'll be a panel that will say, this is the Kimberley room, for example. These are the characteristics, particularly for overseas visitors. We can take all this for granted, where the Kimberley is, um, who the key artists are, and, 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 and why they're admired and what the characteristics of their style might be. Um, but the Mona technology is admirable, um, although, and maybe I'm unusual, it's never quite worked for me, but, but that's probably my own incompetence, um, you know, but, but I never quite get out of it what I thought I was going to get out of it. Um, but what, of course, the other thing, of course, that David's able to do through that, and this is the incredible thing, and I, I was incredulous when he first gave me some of the data, he knows, because of those machines, um, how many seconds each visitor spends in front of each work. And he can just instantly tell you how many people go into a space, which are the popular works, which aren't. I'm, I'm not sure you necessarily need, want to know all that. Um, sometimes <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, in an institution uh, with so many amazing um, artist, art historically trained curators, um, they may be a bit disappointed, perhaps, by some of the results that come out of it. But look, that, that, that um, is on the table, that kind of technology, and we'll just have to feel our way, I think, and decide where we go at each stage. And the, the other question, if I may quickly ask it, is yeah. exclusivity of exhibitions. Is it really about time that finished? Well, I, I spent some time this afternoon with, um, with Michael at the Art Gallery of the New South Wales, and we discussed that very issue. I think, look, we have a thing called the Council of Australian Art Museum Directors, and we all meet, that's the state galleries and the national institutions, um, and of course we want to sell to each other exhibitions at a certain level, but the big blockbuster exhibitions, it's like a game of poker, you, you know, you don't reveal your cards. And, um, and that's a tricky thing, it, it can actually, it's very wasteful in fact. The rest of the world knows that we have well-funded institutions 
that compete with each other for the fabulous exhibitions because they've got to meet the KPIs set by the government of Victoria, the government of New South Wales and whatever, um, and you've got to have more and more visitors and whatever, and, and that's what makes it competitive. And that's why in this country it's sometimes very expensive because people around the world know that they can lift the price for Australia because they know that everyone's competing, sort of get these amazing opportunities. Um, I think we need to relax about it a bit. Um, I have to say that, and that's what Michael and I agreed. And we're certainly going to look very carefully at ways in which we can share exhibitions. And his view is that, you know, this traditional view that well, you can't, if something's on in Canberra, you can't send it to Sydney and vice versa. Melbourne's just possible. Brisbane's better because of the distance and whatever. I think we do need to rethink that. Um, but I think the whole nature, five years from now, the blockbuster concept that we think of probably won't exist anymore. And that, that'll be quite a good thing, I think. Yeah. Um, the problem is that when, when we did Melbourne Winter Masterpieces and we got special funding from the government of Victoria, it was a condition of that funding that it'd be exclusive to Melbourne because it's all about, the only interest is the economic benefit to Victoria. If so many, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of people come from other places, they work out how much they spend in Victoria um, attending the exhibition. And that's, that's the reason you get the government funding. And treasurers and premiers again and again have said to me that. We're funding you um, for the economic benefit. I mean, just make sure it's a good show, you know. Um, can I ask you, slightly extended from what my colleagues have yeah. asked you, where you see what would be described as museum politique or something, museum policy, domestically is fitting into a completely reconfigurated map of relations between big museums internationally? Oh, well, that's a huge question. We can, we can, that's we, why I'm asking you. I think, I think that Janie Anderson might have a two-day sort of <laughs> symposium on that, on that subject. Look, the truth of the matter is that um, Australian um, institutions are very well respected around the world. Um, the, the, the facilities that we have, the training of our curators, our conservators, you know, the registration staff who move things around is always respected. Um, again and again, when we had people coming from overseas when I was at the NGV bringing things in, they would say this, but the, you've got the best facilities of any museum to which we've lent in, in decades. Um, and that was certainly in the years after the redevelopment. Everything was fresh and looking fantastic. Um, look, so Australian, every institution in this country, every director and every curator has already quite a rich network of connections overseas. And it's not too difficult to sort of, you know, have long and interesting discussions about um, you know, what might come where. I mean, we, we, we've had a lot of exhibitions from the Tate, for example, of the NGA. We saw there was that thing in the press the other day that the National Museum of Australia has done a deal with the British Museum, with Neil McGregor, and each year for three years there'll be a new show that comes into Canberra to the National Museum from the British Museum. I think all of that um, is fantastic, um, but I, I think we've just got to get over this KPI obsession um, and say we're here to serve the public of Australia and what's the best way we can do it. Um, I don't think I can say much more than that. It's a bit repetitive, um, but, but these are huge and complex issues. Point yeah. You see, yeah. you send an exhibition only from Nowari, goes to Japan, gets fantastic numbers of people going through it, mm -hmm. gets in two different sides. Yeah. But the body which organises that is not the National Gallery or the National Museum. It's the International Art Museum in Australia. I understand that. Yeah. Uh, what I think that Wait, the point is this. The bodies which give prominence to indigenous art overseas are not the bodies from which you would want to borrow masterpieces. That's true. How do you handle that problem? We accept the reality of the situation. That's all. 
Um, look, there is a look. There, there are there are a couple of there are a couple of interesting points to make about that. Uh, and one is, and you may not like to hear me say this, but you know, I, I've just come back from Europe, and I, you're constantly sitting down with directors saying, "Would you consider this? We've got an idea about this exhibition, that exhibition. Could you lend us the following works?" Um, and you know, the discussion goes on, and sometimes you get a good response, and sometimes it's not. It can't work for a whole range of reasons. Um, and I often say, what can we lend you? What can we give you back? And I think that politicians especially think that we're, you know, everyone will want to have an indigenous Australian exhibition, um, but not everybody does, in fact. And I have to say this, and this is, this is Chatham House rules, but a good number of directors of major leading institutions around the world have said, please don't offer us another indigenous show. We've had enough and our audiences don't really understand in the way that you Australians do the, 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 the complexities to understand exactly you know, um, how one artist differs from another and how one art producing region is different. And that came out a little bit in the, some of the British reviews, of course, of the NGA show, the Australian show. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that in a negative way, it's just a fact of life. Um, we can't go on indefinitely exporting indigenous shows. Um, so that, 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 that's quite an important issue. Um, well, the, my problem is, you know, um, if someone, if I'm asking for something really, really astonishing, you know, the, you, I know you never lend it, or you've only lent it once in the last 20 years, but would you lend it for the National Gallery of Australia? They usually want only one thing, and you can imagine what it is. Uh, blue pots, exactly. Um, and it's only left Australia uh, once since it arrived. It had two venues, but it's only been up um, once, in fact, and that's a reasonably good policy to, to adopt. Um, the other thing is that when you borrow an exhibition from all over the world, from private collectors and in institutions, no one charges for that. Because if everyone charged, it would become impossible. The, the, the numbers, the, the finances just wouldn't work. You, you only pay a fee when one institution loans most or all of an exhibition, and that is their moment to make some money. That, that's an accepted you know, principle, I suppose, in terms of international loans. Yeah. Of course, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is Hi, Jared. It's Hello. Dollar Marilise. Uh, I had one question. The NGV has recently taken an approach where it's announced a new initiative around design and architecture. Yes. yes. Uh, and it recently hosted the Shifting Gears exhibition yes. around cars. Mm -hmm. Do you see the NGA adopting approach around Definitely. those sort of concepts? Definitely. In fact, um, <laughs> even, I mean, uh, weeks before that was in the press, um, it was a major subject of discussion at the NGA. We're going to give much more prominence when we reorganise the collections to Australian design and decorative arts. And the new senior curator of contemporary visual practice is what we're calling it. Part of the uh, brief will be to conceive and deliver exhibitions on Australian architecture as well, contemporary Australian architecture. And Gerald, so, can I add to that fashion? Oh, absolutely. 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 Yes. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, who else, guys? We've got uh, what do you think, uh, Kerry? Another five minutes. Maybe time for another question or two at the most. And then Kerry will uh, um, give her vote of thanks. Fraser. Um, yeah. Institutions are always short of money for yes. acquisitions. Do you ever see a day? Sorry. Do you ever see a day when um, different institutions will get together and you know one will buy Adele Frank and another one will buy Tracy Moffat and in contemporary art mm -hmm. and pool resources well, and art? 
again, that, is, that was part of my discussion with Michael Brand this afternoon about whether or not um, the ICAO of New South Wales and the NGA might swap, swap works on a, on a regular basis, and my, my, I think we both agree that would be a very good thing. Um, we've recently had a major gift, as you know, from Dale Frank, so we're in a very strong position to lend, in fact, um, at the moment, and that would apply to, you know, we, we have, because of the great gifts from Arthur Boyd, we've got 4,500 works, mainly works on paper and drawings, of course, um, by Arthur Boyd. So again, why would we have all that in store? Let's get it out if people want it, you know. Um, yeah. And why would another institution spend the money buying an Arthur Boyd yeah. drawing or whatever when they can always come yeah. to you and borrow it? And, and of course, there's a famous example of the, the, the John Gover of the Corroboree in, in Hobart Town, which earned the directors of three of the um, national institutions, including myself at the NGV. Um, we were investigated by the ACCC for collusion, if you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm at a boardroom lunch with a lot of businessmen, um, I say that because they're really interested in someone who's been investigated for collusion. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's quite a good story, it's an icebreaker. <laughs> um, but that, that of course is owned jointly by the NGA and the Tasmania Museum and Art Gallery, and I think it's the most fantastic thing, you know? Yeah. I've got a question which I'll save for last, but here's Ross. <laughs> This is Professor Ross Harley. Thank you, Jared, for a, a great talk. My question is really a, a bit of a follow-up, just not so much about lending works across the institutions, which I think is a great idea, but it's more about what do we do with 97 to 99% of the works that stay unseen by anyone in the collection? What are you thinking about that for the future? Well, um, there, 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 are, there are two... Um, inadequate responses. I, I think that when all of this material has been collected, you're largely stuck with it. Um, and that means that the taxpayers of Australia will have to go on forever and ever, maintaining it, protecting it from the rain, you know, heating it in winter, cooling it in the summer and whatever. Um, so one is deaccessioning. But you can only you only want to deaccession the dross. I mean, I mean, politicians and, and um, you know, trustees think that you can make a great deal of money. But Dross doesn't sell for very much, I'm afraid. Um, and I can tell you, um, again, Chatham House rules, but my attempts to have a deaccessioning program at the NGV and saying I want a committee of taste, I want absolute... Uh, this is my... I made a big mistake. Um, my big mistake was to say I, I want everyone to agree. I want, um, and no one could agree on anything. Um, so every time I thought we had a bunch of things that really were... no, They hadn't been exhibited since we acquired them. The artists have been forgotten. They exhibited once or twice at the age of 20, and no one's heard of them since. Um, there would be one junior curator who could imagine it might be useful at an exhibition in the future or whatever. Um, so I, I, I think maybe one needs to be a little bit more dictatorial if one's going to get something like that through. Um, that's that, that, that's um, you know, one, of the, one of the obvious ones. And the other is what I said to, to loan things, but that will only be a tiny fraction of the collection. The truth of the matter is that the national collection in these vast storage warehouses is 175, 180,000 um, accessioned items, um, we've got to stop it. Um, and the good news is that um, we did a little graph recently, and because of the fact that Ron, bless him, uh, and this was a really good thing that he did for me, um, in the first three months of the financial year, he spent 100% of the acquisition grant. Um, and and that, was, no, that was on the James Terrell, those installations. It was fantastic. Um, one of the best you know, decisions that any director could make. 
um, but it has allowed a bit of a discipline to be imposed because there literally is no money until the new financial year. Um, and that's a good thing. We, we've, we've slowed it down. Um, the rate of acquisition in the last three or four months per month is about 10% of the same period the previous year. I mean, that's a good thing. One of the hazards um, is not what you spend your money on, but what you don't spend your money on, the gifts. Um, and we've got to get a lot tougher, a lot tougher, but, uh, but also kinder to say, we don't need this. We, we, we appreciate the offer, but we don't need it. It'll, it'll live in darkness on a rack forever. Why don't you keep it in your family and enjoy it? You know, and most people respond fairly positively to that. But um, the, the, the principle that I like to get the curators to buy into is don't take it because it's not going to cost you anything. It will actually cost the taxpayers something in terms of a, the, you know, the, the, the tax rebate under the cultural gifts program. Um, but rather, if you had to buy it using you know, your limited budget, would you make it a priority? And if the answer is yes, it would still be a priority, then let's take it. And if the answer is no, it's not going to be priority, it's just good to have as a bit of backup, a little bit of extra depth, then we would prefer not to have it, in fact. I'm going to ask one more question and hand over to Kerry. Um, and this relates to uh, what you were talking about, the contemporary Asian collection, which obviously is our uh, area of interest, as, as most people in the room know. Um, Nick Mitsovich, when he took over in, at, South, at the South Australian Museum, said he was very specifically going to concentrate not on China uh, because, you know, he wanted to divide and conquer and focus on uh, areas that other people... comes a bit back to what Fraser was saying, areas that other people weren't focusing on. If you are looking at contemporary Asian art across the board, uh, Gerard, that is going to be a very expensive business, as you know. So would it be a, a possible avenue, or would you contemplate the idea of choosing a few countries yeah. and, you know, and focusing you, the countries like Vietnam and uh, Cambodia and so on, where you can buy things yeah. uh, very, at very modest prices now? No, no, look, you've made a very good point, Jean. Um, and I, I'm not in a position to sort of really answer in an no. informed way. Um, but it was always the case at the NGV. We would send groups of curators to China and they would come back utterly perplexed. There is so much to see, so much to absorb. Where, at what point do we enter that market? And that will probably be the same case here. I think what you said is a good idea, particularly Vietnam, because we had a, the, the, the PM had a dinner, a state dinner for the Prime Minister of Vietnam at the NGA last week. And I had to make some remarks, and I did say publicly that we, we want to start collecting more contemporary Vietnamese art. So, I mean, that, that is certainly um, one area. We do pretty well, in fact, in collecting the contemporary art of Papua New Guinea and the South Pacific, and that's really important. Yes, we've got the textile collection. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Look, it's, it's a huge and complex issue. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's a task that we will give the incoming senior curator and we'll, uh, we'll sit down and work out a policy. But it's a good observation. Yeah, thank you. All right. Hi, everyone. I think that's been... Is this working? Um, a, a, a great and illuminating talk. And before I go on to... Um, Thank Gerard. It occurs to me that several of you in the room probably don't know anything about 
the Australian Institute of Art History. It was born out of the CEHA Conference, which is the International Art History Conference, which was held in Melbourne about six years ago. And the inaugural Australian and female director of that was Professor Janie Anderson, who previous to the role she's in now was the Herald Chair of Fine Arts for many years at the University of Melbourne. She's still based, as is the Institute, at the University of Melbourne. We have representatives on our board who are not all art historians. I'm not an art historian. I have a deep interest in, in visual and performing arts. Um, but we've got representatives from the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the NGA, uh, the MCA. Um, we have um, people who've been deeply involved with the NGV. We have people who are business people who just have a passion for the arts, who have something to bring to the table. So we're not an academic um, board, but we're housed in the University of Melbourne. We are national, so we have representatives from all over Australia on a small board. Uh, and our goal is to shine a light on art history. And that doesn't mean dusty racks of old manuscripts and um, never seen paintings. We're all about contemporaneity and we're all about um, uh, opening up um, the mysterious world of art history to younger people. We interact for, to a very large degree with both, both undergraduate and postgraduate students, scholars and fellows from all over the world. At, at any one time, we like to have two or three fellows who are visiting from um, compatible institutions throughout the world. And um, we have a strong interest in Asian scholars and and last year we had Thomas Gertens from, from the Getty in Los Angeles. We host forums on philanthropy, on conservation, on fraud, uh, on heritage. Um, we're very open. We take suggestions from anybody who, who, with an interest. It could be a member of the public might come to us and say, why don't you do something on Japanese gardens or Japanese art and gardens? And we would explore that at a board meeting in a very open and collaborative and very non-precious way. And speaking of non-precious hipsters... <laughs> Can I thank Gerard? And I think you can see a new wind is blowing through our institutions, not just at the NGA, but at the NGV and in South Australia and at the MCA and Art Gallery of New South Wales. And a new interaction, I think, between directors that is more collaborative and less competitive. And that's just going to make art a hell of a lot more relevant to the average man in the street. Um, the Institute of Art History is all about bringing art to people in an accessible and non-precious way. So could you please join me in thanking the accessible and non-precious Gerard Vaughan. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Gerard. That was a great pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> and um, with Jean on our board, um, we're very much looking forward to doing more up here in Sydney. We, we do rotate our board meetings and uh, this is the first 
function we've done with SCAF and it will be the first of what we hope will be at least once or twice a year and maybe even something on a more um, semi-permanent basis. And the other thing we're looking at doing and anybody here that might like to contribute um, ideas um, to me or Jean or Gerard or Janie or Fraser who's our, one of our local directors is we're very interested in the region and, um, and collaborating with other art history institutes in, in the Asian region and uh, looking at having a forum later this year and exploring how we might go about creating an Asian Institute of Art History. So email us, ring us, talk to Jean, talk to Fraser, talk to anybody else who's here from the board and um, your ideas are always welcome. And most especially, I'd very much like to thank Jean and Brian for hosting us so generously tonight. Yeah. <laughs>